We are going deeper into our exploration of the afterlife. Hitherto, we have covered a vast amount. We talked about reward and punishment in general, about the afterlife in general. We briefly touched on Olam Abba, the world to come. We'll still spend a lot more time on this subject soon, please God. We spoke at great length about the soul, the components of the soul, the journey of the soul. And more recently, we spoke about death and judgment. And of course, last time about purgatory and paradise, paradise and purgatory. Today, we're going to follow the soul further as it proceeds into heaven. We're going to figure out some more options of where the soul can end up. But I want to begin by adding, call it one more detail from last time. As I was thinking more about the subject of paradise and purgatory, an idea kind of struck me that I want to share with you all today. So, of course, the sources equate purgatory with fire. The Talmud tells us, we quoted it last week, that fire in this world is a 60th of Gehenom. And we also mentioned the sources talk about the different types of fire and the consuming fire and the eating fire and the drinking fire and the various different types of fire in the purgatory in Gehenom in the afterlife. But here's the question that I want to pose. The soul is spiritual. How can the soul be affected by fire? Of course, what goes into Gehenna? What makes its way to purgatory? It's not the body. The body is in the grave. Of course, the body is being treated, as we mentioned last time. The body also has to be perfected and refined so that the soul and the body can reunite. But the soul is the one in purgatory. The body is not there. And if the soul is spiritual, how can a purging fire in Gehenom have any effect upon the soul? That was the question I wanted to ponder. And when I thought about it more, I think this is the explanation. This kind of opened new vistas of understanding about the whole subject in general. You recall the unforgettable Talmud about the 903 different types of death. This is the Talmud in the book of Brachos. At the very beginning of all of Talmud, it talks about that there's 903 different types of death. And the worst one is called Ascara. And that's like removing thorns from wool. And the best of these 903 types of death is called Nishika. And that's like gliding a hair from a glass of milk. And we explained, of course, that these two polar descriptions of death are describing different statuses of souls. In this lifetime in this world, a soul can get damaged. It can get sullied. It can get ruined. And that's the nature of life. That's the test of life. In this world, the soul, the heavenly soul, that's like the angels, that's so pure. That soul is paired with forces that are engineered to contaminate it. 
Now, generally, we call those forces the Yetzirah. But there is a struggle, there's a conflict. And we're told that our task is to preserve the purity of the soul. There's forces trying to disrupt the soul, trying to sully the soul, trying to damage the soul. And we're encouraged to try to resist the incursions of those contaminants. Before a child is born, he is adjured, maintain your soul in its pristine purity. Don't give in to the forces trying to damage, trying to sully your soul. And of course, there's a wide distribution of success and failure in humanity over the course of their lifetimes. And at the point of exit of the soul from this world, of the soul from this conflict, souls can look radically different. You have the righteous. They've heeded the instructions. And indeed, their soul is untainted. Separating the soul from its contaminants, it's easy. It's like gliding hair out of milk. The wicked, unfortunately, their soul became helplessly entangled in all those other forces. It was damaged. For them, disentangling the two, it's a nightmare. It's like trying to pull those thorns out of the wool. This Talmud Ray talked about previously, and we explained that this analogy is actually giving us a lot of insight. So for one, we pointed out that this analogy reveals what the mechanism of death is. We always thought that, well, death is the separation of body and soul, and the soul is inside the body, and therefore, if you want to create death, you take the soul out of the body. That's what we always thought. In this Talmud, we discover that there's some more nuance here. Death, or the mechanism that actually effectuates death, is not the removal of the soul from the body, but it's really about the removal of the soul's contaminants from the soul. Think about it. The Talmud's talking about 903 different types of death. And the two examples that it gives us are removing alloys from the soul. There are two descriptions of how the contaminants get removed from what is desirable. You want the milk. In the analogy, that's the soul. You want the wool. In the other analogy, that's also the soul. But both have other things mixed into them. And you have to remove those other things. You have to remove the thorns from the wool and the hair from the milk. So the first discovery we mentioned already in the past is that the mechanism of death is to remove the contaminants from the soul and that paves the path for the soul to leave this world. Now in my book, I added that, well, if if death is just the removal of the contaminants from the soul, how does the soul leave the body? And I speculated that truthfully, the soul would have no problem leaving the body. What the soul 
covets more than anything else during its tenure here, what it wants more than anything else is to leave, to go back to its roots. In fact, the Midrash tells us that at least in one juncture of life, the Almighty has to appoint angels to prevent the soul from escaping. You put a soul in this world, in this body, surrounded by all these forces that are trying to destroy it, the soul wants to flee. The soul wants to escape. And the body has to appoint angels to prevent the soul from fleeing, from absconding. Absent any other factors, the soul would hustle back to heaven as soon as possible. So why, when we're still alive, why does the soul stay? Why doesn't it flee? Yes, before a child is born, the Midrash tells us that the Almighty appoints angels to keep the soul inside. But what about once those angels leave? The answer is that those contaminating factors, the proverbial hair or thorns, those contaminants keep the soul in place. And therefore, if you want to remove the soul, all you have to do is remove those contaminants, remove the hair, remove the thorns, and automatically the soul reverts back to its initial inclination. Now it's been freed from the forces keeping it here, here as an H-E-R-E, the soul automatically reverts to fleeing, going back to where it originated from. The soul would always flee back to heaven unless there are angels keeping it here or there are contaminating factors, the proverbial hair or thorns we call the eight Sahara. Unless those, one of those two are present, the soul right away, goes back to heaven. I like to think of this as, you know, two opposite sides of the magnet. You know, if you put a magnet in the opposite direction, they repel each other. The body and the soul, more precisely, the soul and all the other factors, body, yetzara, all the other contaminants, they are inherently incompatible. They are actively repelling each other. During a person's life, they are only united, they are only bound together because the Almighty decrees that that should be the situation. So these two opposites are held in place by those contaminants or the angels previously. And if you remove the contaminants, you pull the hair out, you extract those thorns, automatically the soul returns to its baseline, to its default, and that is to flee back to where it came from. So these are some takeaways from this Talmud. 903 deaths, 903 types of death. Death is the removal of the contaminants of the soul. That's one takeaway. There's another, of course, obvious takeaway. And that is that the status of the soul, or the nature of the soul, that changes over a lifetime. 
In the analogy, the soul of the righteous is described as milk, the soul of the wicked as wool. What this reveals is that the quality, the purity of the soul, after a lifetime of living, that hinges on the nature and the degree of entanglement that the soul was subjected to in this world. Evidently, sins don't just cause entanglement, they also alter the nature of the soul. These are two takeaways from this Talmud. I want to propose a third takeaway that will explain the mechanism of purgatory. It seems to me that there's another point over here, and that is the question of vestiges of contaminants. What happens to the milk once you glide the hair out of the milk? The milk is pristine. There's no hair left inside of it. If you have a glass of milk and you see a black hair inside of it, just remove it and the milk is as good as it was previously. Removing the hair, now the milk has been completely freed of any remnant of its erstwhile contaminant. What happens when you have entangled thorns in wool? Not only is the wool damaged, not only is the disentanglement very difficult to pull off. If you look at the wool, once the separation is done, there's going to be flecks of thorns left behind. And perhaps even more significant, if you look at the thorns that have been removed, it's quite likely that there are parts of the wool, tufts of the wool, that were removed together with the thorns. So we have vestiges of this union on both sides. The wool's going to have some thorns in it, and the thorns are going to have some wool in it. What this reveals to us is that, unlike the righteous, that there's a seamless and complete severing of these two opposites at death. The soul arrives and it's pure, and the body, or the other contaminants as we shall call them, has no foothold of the soul left within it. The milk has no remnant of the hair that used to float upon it. These two have been separated. When the soul of the sin arrives to heaven, it's a very different story. Elements of the soul are missing. They're still clinging to the thorns. And residue of the thorns of the contaminants are still present in the wool. The soul comes bearing part of its contaminants. We can almost say is that like death is not complete. There hasn't been a full separation. I think this is the answer to our original question. We asked the question, well, fire, that's a physical phenomenon. What effect could it possibly have on the soul? A soul is supernally spiritual. It ought to be completely unaffected by fire. Perhaps we can now suggest an answer. The soul, indeed, is completely impervious to fire. 
But that's not what we want to fix over here. It's all those contaminants that it brings along with it, those little flecks, those little vestiges, the residue of the thorns still cleaving to the soul. That's what we're trying to fix. That's what we, that is what we're trying to purge. And those, you bet they are susceptible to fire. And those must be removed. So perhaps we can say, while the soul, that's the entity that's in Gehenom, it's getting cleansed, but what's actually getting removed, purged, it's actually the remnants of the soul's contaminants that it brought along with it. That's what's being burnt off. That's what is being purged. And what remains is just the soul. So in effect, we could say the following. To me, this was a bigger accomplishment, a very significant revelation to understand what's actually happening here. When a righteous person lives a lifetime, they've been working assiduously to preserve the purity of their soul. They don't want to allow their milk, so to speak, to become impure. And there's this complete separation of the two at death. That same result is accomplished by the wicked in Gehenom, the complete removal of these two. In our picture, we have the righteous and the wicked arriving at the same destination, seemingly, and that is having a soul that's completely uncontaminated. The difference is, is that the righteous did it in their lifetime, whereas the wicked needed a little boost, a little assist in Gehenom to get rid of all the vestiges of the soul, of the soul's contaminants. To me, this is a very significant revelation. And of course, it would explain why the very provocative statement that we made last time is in fact true. And that is that someone is very lucky to go to Gehenom because that ensures that they are in fact eligible for the afterlife. They just need some cleansing. And just as we said last time from Ramchal, he says that death is something which is necessary thanks to the sin of Adam. There has to be this removal of these contaminants, of that intermixing of good and bad. It has to happen. And therefore, it is to our benefit to have the concept of death, because now good and bad are intermixed. We have to remove the bad. There's a different layer of that. If someone does not do that completely in their lifetime, they will be cleansed and purged in the afterlife. How much cleansing is needed? Well, that depends on how much of those thorns, so to speak, are still present in the soul. And we're told that that could be up to a year, up to 12 months, but the bottom line is that this process of ensuring that the soul is pure is eligible for the afterlife, for Olam Abba, Gehenom is a very good place to end up in. 
Because that means that you're on this process, you're on this track to end up with a cleansed, purified, refined soul, one that is capable of experiencing the ultimate good in in Olmaba. Now, you remember, and we stressed this many times, but it's important to really understand it. The ultimate reward, the ultimate destiny, the ultimate destination is Olam Haba, the world to come. The goal of our life, the reason why the Almighty created us, is that we can be receptacles of His goodness and His divine pleasure and His divine eternal vitality in that world. And as I mentioned, we only touched on it just a little bit. But the nature of that world and how do we make sure that we get there and everything that we do know and don't know and perhaps can speculate about that world, these are subjects that we will yet discuss at length. Please, God. But we're trying to do this in a methodical fashion. We're trying to work our way there. Try not to skip any steps along the way. And hitherto we've covered the idea of the soul and death and the necessity for death and the concept of the reunification of body and soul. Once the body has been cleansed, once the soul has been cleansed, and more broadly that applies on a universal level, the world too must suffer some degree of death and renaissance. But I want to jump ahead just a little bit to the next subject, that of Olam Abba, because I want to use it to explain the provocative statement that we said earlier, and that is that Gehenom is a really good place. It is an indication of success. Because it demonstrates, it symbolizes that a person is on the path to Olamaba. And again, when discussing life and the afterlife, the definition of success is earning Olamaba and failure is ineligibility for Olamaba. That is the ultimate goal. And thus, Gehenom is a wonderful boon for humanity because it expands the population that maintains eligibility for Olmaba. It's not just those who are so pristinely pure, those that are like the milk and the hair, those four flawless people we mentioned in the past, the completely righteous who in their lifetime did all the work of maintaining the purity of the souls. Not only them were eligible, even people that have a a more checkered life, whose soul has gotten somewhat corrupted. Their soul is a little bit like wool, and it's a little bit infected by thorns. Even those people can perhaps still be eligible for success in life. But I want to expand this subject, kind of take it to the next level. We said that if someone is meritorious, they can end up either in paradise if they're completely pure, or they can make a stop 
in purgatory, in Gehenom, from anywhere from a second to a whole year. But ultimately, those are descriptions of success because they're on the path to Olam Abba. But there's another category of people that we talked about very briefly last time who may lose eligibility to Olam Abba completely. I want to talk about those people who aren't successes. And along the way, this will reveal more and more about the mechanics of how a person's behavior in their lifetime translates to success in the afterlife. So there's going to be a twofold objective. Number one, to discuss a category of people who are failures, who don't end up on this track to Olam Abba. And number two, that discussion will help explain more about the nature of success versus failure, how it works. And let's start like this. There are different categories of mitzvos and of transgressions. And in the seminal book, the classic work on repentance, The Gates of Repentance, Shari Tshuva, written by Rabbeinu Yonah, one of the great medieval sages, in section three, gate three of his book, he enumerates ten different levels of transgressions in ascending order of severity. And in each level, in each category, he gives a whole essay on some of the mitzvahs that fall under that category. And of course, the book is about repentance, and he argues that, well, if you want to repent, you have to figure out, you know, where you went wrong. And there are 10 different categories of mistakes that a person can make vis-a-vis their behavior and how it's going to violate the will of Hashem and potentially damage their soul. So level number one, which is the least severe, that's a rabbinic law. And level number two is a positive commandment, where the mice says do something, a person rejects that. Level number three is a negative commandment, meaning a violation of a transgression, of a prohibition, but one that the Torah itself allows for fixing. Meaning, don't do this, but if you do do this, you can fix it like that. That's level number three. Level number four is a transgression that has no deed, no action associated with it. It's like a thought or maybe even speech. Level number five is a transgression that has a deed. Level number six is a transgression that has capital punishment in heaven, meaning that the the courts, the human courts, don't adjudicate it, but it's a severe sin that results in capital punishment by God. Level number seven is what's called kares, which means spiritual disenfranchisement. We'll talk about that in a second. Level number eight, that's the capital crime cases that are adjudicated 
by human courts. Level number nine are the prohibitions that you have to voluntarily offer your life to not transgress. And finally, level number 10 are transgressions that are so severe that if someone does them, they are permanently banned from Olam Abba. So if 10 different degrees of sin, and that is because these varying activities, they bring about different degrees of spiritual damage that is incurred to the soul as a result of these sins. There's variability here in mitzvos and sins. And the worst, well, level number 10, results in a person losing their eligibility to Olam above. When they arrive, they don't just go to paradise if they're completely righteous. Purgatory if they need to be cleansed. They're not a candidate for Olam above. They're permanently ineligible. I would encourage everyone to read this section. He lists the common mitzvot that are included in each category. And as a sidebar, the most mysterious level on this list is kares, level number seven. And the Mishnah enumerates 36 different transgressions that result in kares, in this spiritual disenfranchisement. There may be an even more expansive list. Now, the term kares, the Hebrew word kares, means to be cut off. The Torah tells us many times, if someone does this, their soul is cut off. It's severed from its spiritual source. And the Ramban explains, this is like a a branch of a tree. If you cut off that branch, it's now severed from its roots. And that's symbolic of the soul that has its roots in heaven, and it wants to go back to its roots, but if it's been severed from its roots, it can never return to whence it came from. Now, the Ramban has a whole essay. It was actually entertaining to do a whole, a whole podcast on the different levels of kares. I thought it would be a little bit, a little bit off topic, so we made it a little sidebar here. But the Ramban in chapter 26 in Devarim Deuteronomy has a whole essay on the three different levels of kares. Some transgressions of kares result in a person's body being punished. That's level one. Level two is some people whose body is completely unaffected by the kares, but in the world of the souls, they are affected. And some this is the highest level, the worst level, most severe level, that both the body and the soul are punished for the highest level of kares. Now, there's another important essay, courtesy of Rabbi Chaim Volozhiner, where he says that kares does not result necessarily in the soul being completely cut off. Rather, the soul is so connected to its roots, there are so many branches connecting the soul to its roots that someone can lose one branch, but most of their soul is still salvageable. Others argue that Karis is not eternal devastation, rather it's a reduction in stature in Omaba, meaning they're cut off, but not completely from the afterlife, 
but they had a fitting stature, a fitting level, a fitting spot in the afterlife, and they've been cut down to size, so to speak. They've been reduced. That's the little sidebar about Karis. But I want to look at the bigger picture, you know, without getting bogged down with the details, the particulars. It's clear that there's a certain hierarchy of mitzvahs. And there are varying degrees of spiritual damage by these different levels of sin. And some sins are so injurious to the soul that they cause a degree of spiritual disenfranchisement, spiritual death, permanent exclusion from Olam What that means is that there are things that can blemish, that can damage the soul to such a degree that it has no opportunity to flourish in the afterlife. And when we discover what that actually means, it's going to reveal to us not only about someone who takes the other path. So we have two people that arrive to heaven. Both of them are successes. One goes to purgatory, one goes to paradise. But they're both successes because both of them have a soul that's capable once it's polished and cleansed. It's capable of the afterlife. Here we discover that there's another path that is possible, and that is that the soul arrives and it's not eligible. And if we discover why the soul is not eligible, it's going to not only reveal about the nature of that other path, path number three, if we could call it like that, it's also going to deepen our understanding of the first two paths, namely the paths of success leading to paradise or leading to First, a pit stop in purgatory will discover not just about why someone is ineligible for the afterlife, but also why someone is, in fact, eligible. This idea is found in many sources in our literature. I wrote about it extensively in my book, and it goes like this. We know there are 630 mitzvahs. 248 of them are positive mitzvahs. Do this. 365 of them are negative mitzvahs. Don't do this. And the Talmud tells us this is not a random number. Oh no, 248 has significance. 365, that's not by chance. There are 248 different limbs in the human body. There are 365 days in the year. And of course, we've already speculated in the past, if Gehenom is maximum for a year, maybe it's not by chance because there are 365 different transgressions. If someone violates every single one of them, well, they have to fix 365 different problems. And maybe there's a day to rectify every transgression. That was our speculation that we submitted in the past. But there's a certain corpus here, the 613 mitzvahs. The Kabbalistic sources 
they take this a step further. Not only does the number 365 have significance because it, it corresponds to the days of the year, it also corresponds to the body of a person because a person has 248 limbs and 365 sinews. And therefore, Futa asked, how many parts, how many parts are there in the human to make the skeleton, shall we say, of the human? You need 613 building blocks, 248 limbs, and 365 sinews. That's what our sages tell us. And of course, it's not a coincidence that the precise number of components in a human body corresponds to the precise number of mitzvahs in the Torah. Mitzvahs are there to improve us. And every part of the Torah, every mitzvah, corresponds to one part of us that needs to be improved. Improved in the positive sense, in the active sense. Improve in a prophylactic sense to avoid problems. But this is the picture that has been painted for us. We have a human body, 613 parts, 248 limbs, 365 sinews, and the whole corpus of the mitzvos, 613 mitzvos corresponding to 613 parts of the human body. That's level one. It goes a step further. The body and soul are mirror images of each other. Our sages tell us that the body, that's like a garment for the soul. The soul is who we are, but the the soul needs to be clothed. It's temporarily enshrouded by a body in its lifetime. And therefore, just like a tailor who is affixing clothing, who is preparing clothing for a body, you have to measure how long is the arm and how wide is the waist and how big is the neckline and how long are the pant lines? How big are these feet? A tailor makes the clothing match the body that it's clothing. And therefore, if the clothing of the soul is the body, it should come as no surprise that the body is going to be matched to the soul. It's going to be tailored to clothe the soul encased within it. And therefore, if we know that the body has 613 parts, then we also know that the soul also has 613 parts. And the way it works is it's the opposite. It's not like we are a body and we have a soul within us. We are a soul and the body is created and tailored to match the soul that permeates the body. So we have 613 mitzvahs, 613 parts of the body, and 613 parts of the soul. And when a person does a mitzvah, they are giving life to the corresponding part 
of their body and soul. The verse tells us, Leviticus Vayikra 18.5 You do the mitzvos. You guard my statutes and my laws. Asher osam ha'adam. That when a person does them, v'chaibahem, through them they shall live. That person shall live. How does a person earn spiritual life? He is, 613, 613, those two fuse together the body and the soul. How does he give life, spiritual life, to his body and his soul? Each part of the body and soul are nourished, are fed by the corresponding mitzvah. And therefore, if a person does all the mitzvahs, they are going to result in a body that's infused with spiritual vitality. And what's their soul going to look like if you to, if you were to remove the soul and look at the soul, what is the status, what is the health of those 613 parts of the soul? If a person does all of the 613 things that give life, that give nourishment to the soul, the soul is ready for the afterlife. Every mitzvah earns life to the corresponding limb of that mitzvah, both on the body and on the soul. And if a person, over the course of their lifetime, they do all 613 properly, in a robust fashion, you pull the soul out, what does the soul look like? It's alive. All 613 parts are functioning properly. That soul can flourish in the afterlife. And that's why there's variability. A sin is damaging one of the 613 parts. It's damaging because it causes destruction. It's damaging because it withholds nourishment. And just as is true with the body, it's true with the soul, that not all parts of the soul are the same. The body is 613 parts, but they're not the same. You know, the toe, the smallest toe on your left foot, it's a part of your body, but it doesn't affect the vitality of this body functioning to the same degree that the heart, the kidneys, the brain do. You could live a life with only minimal disruption lacking that toe. That same hierarchy is true on the spiritual side as well. There are 10 different levels of mitzvos. And if someone's lacking certain large mitzvos, so to speak, more severe mitzvos, that soul is lacking a necessary and vital component, that soul cannot have any life. And those are the most, the more severe sins at the bottom of that list. The ones that, you know, the soul's cut off. It's cut off. You don't have a heart. You're dead. Sorry. Can't live without a heart. If a soul is lacking the vital life-giving components, it cannot live at all in Al-Mabba. That soul is incapable of maintaining spiritual life. Of course, 
Every mitzvah and every transgression is important, but some of them are less severe. If someone is losing the mitzvah that corresponds to their small toe, they can still have spiritual life. They will be a spiritual cripple in the afterlife, but they could still have life. And this idea relates to the understanding of mitzvahs more holistically. You could have someone with impaired functionality in their physical limb. You could have a kidney, but you need a boost with some external dialysis, God forbid, occasionally. You could have a limb that's not really working at the highest level. There's suboptimal performance. So you have someone who's lacking a limb, someone who has a limb, but it's just weak. And that, of course, applies to our spiritual halves as well. You could have a spiritual limb, but it's not really functioning at the highest level. And that's the idea of quality of a mitzvah. If someone has a mitzvah with all the meaning and all the devotion, all the dedication, and it's difficult to do it nonetheless, they are creating a spiritual counterpart limb that's going to be really strong and robust. And for eternity, that limb will have that robustness born about by that mitzvah. I will remind y'all of what we said many moons ago, that there are some mitzvahs that are like a multivitamin. A panacea, if you will. Torah study is such an important component of our spiritual agenda because it affects not just one limb, it affects them all. But the larger takeaway is that the mitzvahs of the Torah are tailored because they are the spiritual recipes that infuse life in all of our 613 parts, both in our body and our soul. And what you look like, your identity in the afterlife, is the result of what you built spiritually with mitzvos. And this explains to us the mechanics of how mitzvos result in success for the soul. And it also explains to us why certain severe sins result in a person taking the other unfortunate path and losing their eligibility to the afterlife. Now, I know a lot of people, they ask the question, give me a list of 613 mitzvos, and let me know which mitzvah corresponds to which part of the body. Give me the list of the 248 limbs and the 365 sinews, and I want to know exactly how it fits out, exactly how it's matched. We're not told the answer. We're not told the breakdown of which mitzvah corresponds to which limb. And the reason for it is because you really need all of them. In my book, I quoted my grandfather who said in a statement that you never forget, we don't think so much about our fingernails, 
but no one would voluntarily allow someone to pry one off. And the reason is because we view ourselves as, as, as one holistic entity. We're not willing to forfeit any digits. And therefore, it's important for us, as I like to say, not to skip leg day. We have to pursue every mitzvah because the goal is to create a fully functioning, a fully operational spiritual counterpart for the afterlife. And therefore, the Torah doesn't say, well, this mitzvah is the one that really is important because then someone may focus on that and neglect something else. That's what the Mishnah says. We should pursue the easy mitzvah, the more lenient or the lighter mitzvah, as we do the most severe one, because we don't know the reward of mitzvahs. I will point out, as I did in my book, the Maharsha, one of the great commentators on the Talmud, he comments on that page of Talmud where it talks about the 248 mitzvahs corresponding, positive mitzvahs corresponding to the 248 limbs, he tells us that the mitzvah that corresponds to our heart that pumps life blood to all the limbs and all the organs, that's the mitzvah of emuna, the first of the Ten Commandments, believe in God, to recognize God, to acknowledge God. He's the one who took us out of the land of Egypt to recognize not just the existence, but the oversight and all the other, of course, definitions that we have of God. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the supervisor. We spoke about, of course, in the past, the components of what we believe when we say God. Believing all of that, living by that principle, that's the heart. And that is what gives life to all aspects of our soul. So that's the exception. We know which organ, which limb corresponds to Amuna, which one's the heart. But as a general rule, we're not given a definitive guide as to which mitzvah corresponds to which limb because we really need them all. And the result of these mitzvahs, it's not just like we think of mitzvahs in a very childish fashion. You do a mitzvah, you get a coupon, redeemable in heaven. Mitzvahs are not about stockpiling spiritual credits. They are about creating our identity, creating our spiritual counterpart in the afterlife. So I think the major takeaways from today's talk are as follows. It was a little bit sprawling. It's nice to have this recorded on the podcast, I guess you want to listen to it again. As I was preparing, I'm like, mm, this is a lot to absorb in an hour. But once you realize that, well, you can re-listen to it. In the past, I've suggested you listen to it 101 times. If you listen to it 101 times, you really understand all the moving parts. But the general takeaways, the principal takeaways of what we talked about today is we learned about the mechanics, the mechanics of the afterlife. Someone arrives after a lifetime, after death, 
And that's going to look very differently for every person, depending on the nature and the relationship of the soul with its contaminants. Someone arrives after they're judged. Which bucket are they going to end up in? The most righteous, they go straight to paradise, as we mentioned last time. That's a waiting period. They're there to wait for the body to be ready, for the world to be ready. They're there to restore the capacities of the soul that it's going to need once it is reunited with the body. That's the best place to end up. But the Almighty expands the eligibility of those who are capable to earn the afterlife by creating the possibility of post-mortem cleansing. And today we discovered the nature of Gehenom is to achieve for the wicked what the righteous achieved in their lifetimes, the complete separation, the complete purging of the contaminants of the soul from the soul. And I did hint briefly. I want to say it explicitly. I'm not saying that the quality of the soul of the righteous and of the soul of the wicked who have been purged in purgatory, I'm not saying that the quality of those souls are identical. One's the milk, one's the wool, but both of them are going to be cleansed and removed from their contaminants. And both of them will eventually find their way to paradise, each according to their level. And they're there to wait, to wait for the body to be ready, to wait for the world to be ready, and to enjoy something akin to the pleasure of Olam Abba. They're not quite ready for Olam Abba. That's after the resurrection. And number two, we talked about the nature of someone who is ineligible, who's found to be ineligible for Olam Abba. And we talked about the various different levels of sin, and now we know why mitzvahs and sins have a direct relationship on the status of our soul in the afterlife, because they are the lifeblood. They are the nourishment. They are creating the vitality of the soul in the afterlife. And therefore, if you have mitzvahs, to the degree that you have those mitzvahs, that is the degree of vitality of the soul in the afterlife. And if someone is lacking major aspects of their soul, such a soul, to not have life in the afterlife, and it is in the third and most unfortunate of buckets. Next time, please God, we're going to talk about what happens to the souls that are not eligible. What happens to the soul that receives kares. And we're also going to dip our toe in the vast subject of reincarnation. After death, there's the judgment, various buckets, what happens to the body, what happens to the soul, paradise purgatory, being ineligible. We're going to talk more about that. The souls that are found to be not eligible for paradise, not eligible for purgatory, what happens to them? Where do they go? Can they potentially come back for round two? I'm a little bit uneasy about the subject because not only is it something which is so mind-bending, the volume of literature 
on the subject is absolutely vast and completely, completely Kabbalistic. So I haven't yet decided how much we're going to cover. I feel like if we go through all the sources on the subject, we'll be here for a very long time. I think what we'll try to do is get the big picture of what this means and how this works. But regardless, I'm really excited to dig into this. Please God, next time. What a joy to study these subjects with y'all from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. As always, my email just says rabbiwalbejim.com. I'm looking forward to your questions, to your comments, to your feedback on this subject and all the other subjects that we are covering in these podcasts. Torah 101, Parsha Podcast, listen to them all and send me an email, rabbiwalbejim.com.